that magic you make and every day love me your own special way melt all my heart away with a smile take time to tell me listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM here in the Bay Area. And if you're listening somewhere else, you're probably listening on KKUP.org. Um, thanks so much, Fly, for the great music as always. <laughs> All right. So tonight's show, this um, this is the poetry hour, as many people call it. Um, the show is also called Out of Our Minds. It is a very long running poetry radio show that has been here on KKUP for something like 45 years. Um, tonight's guest is Ayaz Parani, and Ayaz was born in Musoma, Tanzania, to parents born in um, Kapsabet and Tanga. He grew up in Canada and studied humanities and writing at Glendon College in Toronto and Concordia University in Montreal. At Vermont College of Fine Arts, Ayaz was a student of the late Jack Myers. In this interview, we're talking about his book, Happy You Are Here, but of course, we talk about other things as well, related to poetry, identity, ethnicity, race. Um, it was really nice because I was able to meet Ayaz in Aromas, which is where I live, and he also lives in Aromas. I don't know if I should have told people that. <laughs> anyway, um, and we met at this park, and it happened that I thought the park was going to be really quiet, but it turned out that the park was quite loud. So we moved to my place, and then it turned out that my place was louder because there were semi-trucks and trains driving by. Um, so I tried to edit out all of those sounds, but once in a while you might hear some, some trains in the background, so I apologize for that. At any rate, here we go. Um, here's my interview with Ayaz Parani, author of Happy You Are Here. So you, so you were born in Tanzania. I was born in Tanzania. Uh, oh. You know, a, a small village, Misoma, mm-hmm. right uh, on the edge of Lake Victoria. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'm not really Tanzanian. Um, <laughs> my parents were born there. My grandparents were born there. But um, my ancestors came from India, the Western states. Okay. That's why we speak Gujarati, Kachi, and um, some from my family speak Urdu. My wife speaks Urdu. <laughs> And so your family is from um, Southeast Asia, that kind of... Right, right. Indian subcontinent, basically. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that's a huge place, and it's possible to divide that up into um, community groups to make things make more sense. Okay. You know? So, uh, really, we're from the western side of India, Mm -hmm. Gujarati, Kutch, and um, Sindh which is in Pakistan now. It, mm-hmm. it includes Punjab. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of um, that heritage comes from Islamic sources, mm-hmm. um, Persia, Persia mainly, because there's a land route, mm-hmm. and um, from Arabia, um, uh, crossing through Yemen, right across the, the ocean. Okay. So uh, although there's, of course, um, your regular Indian elements, like... Uh, Hindu symbols, Hindu mm-hmm. rituals, Indian symbols or Indian mm-hmm. rituals or practices. Um, it's it's really a Muslim um, community. I see. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we were talking about uh, where where you come from and the community that you developed, and then so and then we were talking in the car a little bit about how you moved to London and how there was a the kind of racism that existed in in that space. So we were yeah. Talking. So um, this book really is is not really about India or um, where my ancestors came from or anything like that. Frankly, I've never been to India and I don't know much about it. It's really the subject of my second book. This one is mostly about um, East Africa and um, going to England and to white countries, mm. to, to the West, and um, I guess growing up in those countries uh, without really knowing much about my past or anything like that. Um, I forgot what the question was, but <laughs> something something about um, ending up in England. Yeah, so right. you probably know that most of the East African countries in the at the end of the colonial period either had revolutions or um, as the uh, Western colonial powers left um, I guess created power vacuums or right. um, created uh, movements for independence um, just like in India and the implication was that Asians also were um, asked to leave, or it was suggested that Asians should leave too. Right. And I don't think anybody in my family really feels bad about that in particular. Um, it seemed to make sense, frankly, at the time. <laughs> um, I think most Indians would would see that they were part of the colonial bureaucracy, mm. that um, Indians were a kind of um, um, point on the edge of white colonialism. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. So Indians end up being the merchants, the bureaucrats, the, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess because we're in between black and white, I'm not sure what made the, the <laughs> what made us seem, make it, made it seem reasonable for us to be part of the machinery of colonialism. That's really interesting to think about. I mean, I think about that a lot when I when I think about the kinds of people who are who are allowed who are allowed into spaces um, that that maybe I don't know if allowed into spaces is the right term, but in some terms it is. Like in Hollister, where I grew up, San Benito County, um, there were people that were Hispanic. I'm Mexican, Chicana. There were people who were Hispanic or, or Latino that had moved up into these different positions, either as teachers or in other in other spaces that um, that contrasted to the farm worker who right. never gets to move up or doesn't move up or right. or whose children also struggle to move up. And it was always a question to me, like, how how does one subset of a culture move into this sort of um, superior space? while the other subset doesn't right. have the access at all. Right. And, you know, I would never want to suggest that that superior space was a very special space right. because it still was nowhere within the reach of what the white experience in East Africa was like. So um, it, it granted, I think, East A uh, Indians might have been granted a certain status, but it's not, it wasn't much of a status. Mm -hmm. And uh, so from there, from East Africa, after the, you know, um, after the um, uh, self-rule movements, we just, we ended up going to the countries where, that would grant us permission. And the first one was England. Mm. And um, thousands of Indians ended up in um, England in the 70s, early 70s. And from there to places like Canada because of the, they were part of the Commonwealth. And you mentioned that there were some ghettos, uh, that, that it was a very segregated kind of community when, when you were there. Yeah, I was a kid in England, but I think it, it's still fair to say that um, uh, England has very defined places for particular types of people. I mean, you can think about it in a lot of ways, and you might say that people want to live, communities want to live with each other. But um, I think it's also probably true that um, England's a very segregated place. Um, you know, communities feel comfortable with each other partly because um, they have fear. Right. 
and um, and that that's where we lived in places like Harrow on the Hill and Ealing, um, and from there to to Canada. And so that so that sort of um, that sort of is inside of this book in some ways or another. Yeah, I think so um, because I was just at that age. Um, you know, I was a child when we came to the West, and I've always really thought of myself as just as much Canadian or or, or what have you as as East African. Right. And it's um, tampered with like all of my fantasies mm. and my ideas about what it would be to you know um, be a complete person or have potential or do something. Um, my heroes were all white, <laughs> and. All the books that I read, uh, the history that I learned was entirely a white history. So, um, you know, in some ways, this book is uh, trying to say something about that. Mm. Um, you know, because I, it's very hard for me to reject all of those authors that I I read all. The, all of those heroes that I had or fantasies that I had, it's very hard to cut them out of the mind. So um, I'm trying to make something out of that. I'm trying to include my whatever I think of as my actual identity, even though I never actually possessed it. Right. Even now, it's almost entirely scholarly. It's almost entirely about learning about it. It's not something that's growing inside me or mm. has developed over time. It's completely artificial. So I'm trying to sort of make some sense out of that, I suppose, in this book. I think I think that that's a really interesting point because I I think that in America and American culture, even in California, as diverse as we are, and even I'm younger, so I may have access to a different kind of education. Even growing up, my heroes were white, and even growing up. Uh, even the discussions of Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez didn't feel like the same kind, they didn't hold the same kind of weight in my personal culture as um, the women who, the, the white women who were working um, back in the day or the kinds of legislation or the kinds of changes that came from the white culture. And then when I went into studying literature, I, I fell in love with Elizabeth Bishop and I fell in love with the writings of Walt Whitman and the transcendentalists who had nothing to do with who I was or who I identified with as a person. And I think that that is, um, I think that I personally have lamented that assimilation process and have had to come back to learning about the writers who were speaking against those spaces. And I think that, that it does feel artificial as I'm trying to create an identity now. And so I, I can feel that from you. Yeah, I mean, um, wouldn't it have been... Uh, great, really, to have like grown as a person, developing your personality and your um, your belief system or whatever, with all of that inclusiveness that you're learning about now, that I'm learning about now. Instead, I have to do it in a, like I said, in a kind of scholarly way, as though I were a student of what supposedly is my actual identity. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it at times it's revelatory you know at times it's wonderful at times I feel like I'm really inside it and it's becoming part of me but um, I also recognize that it's not and um, it's actually a, something I'm learning like algebra <laughs> yeah and it like you said it's lamentable but at the same time you know I wouldn't want to begrudge the things that I I did learn the things that I experienced um, I'm not trying to suggest that I had a very hard childhood or, mm. or anything like that. Right. Or no one was especially um, tough on me, you know, <laughs> growing up. I I had pretty good experiences in Canada, I would right. say, overall. But, um, you know, it's sad. It's, uh, it's a little bit hard to take, mm. um, you know. It feels like I'm trying to swallow a pill right. instead of, I don't know. Right. And I mean, I think it's important to note that 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 being a person of color doesn't necessarily always have the inherent um, characteristic of struggle like that doesn't always have to be part of it. But that actually being a person of color has multiple layers of 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 difficulty within the cultures themselves. And and I think assimilation is is 
the word that I use the most when I'm talking about um, what it means to find yourself in the world. Because what I learned about assimilation from my professor at San Jose State, Persis Karim, who first you know, started identifying these things for me, was that in order to become assimilated, you must lose parts of yourself. And that uh, realization that in order to become part of the American quote-unquote culture and to swallow the American dream is what I was trying to do, uh, I had to lose more and more of myself. And I lost it without knowing. Yeah. And I think that's the scary part about... Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it, it, it is. Especially when um, you realize that you lost something that you hadn't had. Like, it was lost before you could have lost it. Before mm. you had a chance to lose it, it was already gone. Mm. Um, you know, I don't remember anything about East Africa. And I certainly have no memories of India having never been there, even though my, my I, I would say that my Your identity is, is, is rooted to both those places. I lost them before I knew that I hadn't didn't have them. So I'm trying to recover things that um, not only are not there anymore, but really were never there for me. Um, it, it's incredibly awkward. <laughs> and at times you feel a bit, um, like you said, that it's... Uh, you painted as a struggle you feel like you're being a bit of a jerk or you feel like you're always criticizing mm. um sometimes um you uh you would rather celebrate things you'd rather um i don't know uh talk about things as though um i don't know how to say it but mm -hmm. you know <clears throat> when um Whenever I submit a poem or uh, 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 to a magazine or I, I read my poems, I always get the feeling that I'm writing about my color too much or I'm mm. writing about my race or my... It's always an aspect of my identity or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you start to feel bad about it and you figure that maybe you should write about trees or you should write <laughs> about, I don't know, whatever people... Um, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, no, see no, if I, I can express this, but... And then I realize, though, when I read, let's say, um, a, a book of poems by mm -hmm. a, a white author, mm -hmm. and they write about, I don't know, um, their cars or Disneyland or um, candy apples or whatever it is that they write about, they are actually writing about their race. Mm. They are actually writing about their identity and their heritage. It's It's just that their heritage is not something that has to be noted as mm. their heritage. When somebody writes about candy apples that they had as a child, that's not, not my experience. Mm. That's a white experience as far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned, or, right. or something like uh, a white experience. Mm -hmm. They don't have to say that they're writing about their identity. Mm -hmm. Everything that they're writing about is writing about their identity. It's as if it's default. It's just that it's default. It's ubiquitous, and they don't have to mention it, and they don't have to feel bad about it. When mm. they stand up at a poetry reading and read a poem that, to me, is obviously about their race or their identity or their color or their heritage, just because it's about the things that are ubiquitous. Right. Um, they don't have to feel bad about it. They don't have to um, uh, sort of um, apologize they can just keep doing it. But every time I submit a poem or read a poem or write a poem, I always wonder whether I could, do I have to write about? It mm. always feels like I'm making sure that I write about my race or my identity. But it, I know in the end, at least the, you know, in theory, it's the same thing. <laughs> they also are doing the same thing as me. It's just that their heritage is ubiquitous. Mm. It's the default heritage. They don't have to mention it. I mean, th these words that you're saying and the way that you describe that is so important and so interesting. I'm, I remember being in graduate school and being in the writing workshop and um, having someone say to me, do you know how to write a poem about anything other yes. than being Mexican? Right. And I remember thinking about that and, and, and feeling a, a immediately angry. Of course. And then also not knowing how to respond yeah. to that to that kind of reaction. Right. And I think that 
that even if I wrote about a tree, it would always be from the perspective of being Mexican. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'm suggest uh, as mm -hmm. you uh, as we're suggesting, um, they also are writing about the tree in with reference to their heritage, and they just don't have to. It, it's just not obvious to everyone. Just about everyone in the room is also white. Right. You know, just a, a few months ago, I had submitted uh, a manuscript to a, um, a publisher, and they wrote back saying, you know, that they were interested, but they found it disappointing that I wasn't part of the writing commu the, the writing community. This was in um, Toronto. I wasn't part of the writing community, you know, I, um, going to um, readings and, and participating in that. So basically what they were asking me is, was to join a fraternity. <laughs> right. It's no different than in college when you they were asking me to join a fraternity, and that fraternity was a white fraternity. Yes. Almost everyone in that so-called writer's community was going to be white, was white. Mm -hmm. That's why I didn't go to... That's one of the reasons why I didn't go to the readings, because hardly anyone there was like me. Right. To, to suggest that I had to join a really a fraternity in order to be recognized as a, a, a legitimate poet in this publisher's eyes is racist yes yes it is and 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 and, and yet as writers of color we are you know we were talking about earlier bringing that, that there were certain subgroups of people that were allowed to go into these other spaces that were brought into these other spaces. And, and I know that there have been times that I have been chosen sure. in order to make a presence in those white right. spaces right. in this, uh, we call this being othered or being tokenized. Right. right? And I, I had a, a conversation with one of uh, another poet, Raquel um, Salas Rivera, who said, I sometimes I feel like I'm angry at people who allow themselves to be tokenized, but then I realize that we don't have a choice about tokenization. Right. We can continue to reject it, but if we do, then those white spaces will never have voices like us in them. Mm. So it's a it's a double-edged sword with the way we function. You feel terrible about it. You're not quite sure what to do. And and of course you as you probably know, when you end up going to take that space, to, to be the other in that space, um, you become even more uh, <laughs> ethnic mm. and even more, mm. even more uh, it's more pronounced because you're constantly um, in that system of difference between mm. the, the, the scheme of whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, when you stand there and you read, you become even more what they wanted you to be, the, uh, the other. Do you see what I mean? Yes. In, in relation to the others and that system of difference. And it's very disappointing. You feel, uh, you know, like you said, angry. But um, you also recognize that um, that might be your only chance to read. Yeah. That that might be the only way you get heard. It, it might be you would think that it might lead to someone else or more than one or a few others next time being asked. Never really seems to work out that way. It's always just the one <laughs> or, yeah. or two. But, you know, you, what are you supposed to do um, other than be disappointed and angry? Um, you know, I just come away from that those, those types of events feeling more ethnic than I ever did before. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, it's funny. It's funny to say that because I remember. I mean, I often feel when I go back to my family or I go back to family gatherings, I often feel like I don't always, I don't always belong in that space right. because of the kind of education that I have and and was had the opportunity and that my family allowed me, sure. pushed and and helped me to to have. And so you have this lamenting feeling that like when you go to these readings, at least for me, I'm representing the Chicana that they that they don't often hear. And, you know, and, and there's all these assumptions about Chicano mismo. And then I go back home and I'm like, this is true Chicano culture, but they would never, ever, ever be invited other than to clean up after these readings or to um, clean the classes after the university students have left. And, and that's true Chicano culture. And what I am is not, is not Chicano. I am some kind of bridge 
And I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's so complicated. Um, you know, if you're going to go with the metaphor of the bridge, the thing is that I'm I'm we're, I'm building the bridge as I'm as I'm going. It's mm. not the bridge isn't even there to mm. the past or to the previous culture or whatever. Mm. I'm just making it up. <laughs> do you know? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm learning about it and adding to it. It's not something that's just sort of uh, generated out of me naturally because I understand my identity or my culture. I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Right. I'm just adding to it as I go, so it's it's very precarious. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even now in this this kind of an interview, I'm not really sure if I make sense or mm. if these are um, uh, hurtful or legitimate things to say. Or you know, I already feel bad about the Disneyland <laughs> comment. You know what I mean? You you just don't know. But I, I would say that um, speaking on the other side. It would help, I think, if it if it was um, made more pronounced or recognized that the the um, white authors at that reading are also presenting their ethnicity. Yeah. They they are also making a scene out of their ethnicity, their heritage, whether they really want to admit it or not. Um, uh, it they are the. It's just that they're everywhere, you know? <laughs> right. It's just that they're the default culture. And yeah. so in, in that in that aspect. And, you know, if I had gone back to that workshop now, I would be able to say something like that. Well, you are also right. sort of ex you are also explaining yourself as a white male because that's who you are. And that's the perspective yeah. that you're giving. And I am just writing what I am and yeah. what I know, which is very I mean, it's a very complicated space. So I was just saying that I really enjoy your book and I'm glad we're having this conversation because I had, while I was going through your book, which is called Happy You Are Here, I had this sense of two spaces and um, and what something I call the virtual, which I'm stealing from one of my professors, Ben Lerner, who talked about the virtual space between two spaces not being able to exist in one or the other. And he talked about it in the sense of prose poetry, how prose poetry sort of um, doesn't doesn't have the the aesthetics of one or the other, but contains the aesthetics of both and then functions in both. And that's what I kept coming back to with Happy You Are Here. At first, it was like, um, I was I was thinking about how the word happy is not the word excited, but it's also not the word sad. It's this sort of neutral space in between. And then also about um, the love that is sort of presenting in the book. It's not it's not like overt um, intimacy. It's subdued. It's subdued love in some ways. And I, and I, so I knew that there had to be some kind of struggle of space that was going on with you. Yeah. I don't know really. Um, you know, <laughs> that that's probably saying a lot more than, um, but yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, it's always, again, it's always going to come down to things like race and color and identity and all of that for me. And, mm -hmm. and as I was trying to say earlier, that's how it is for everyone if they want to admit it right um but definitely i think um i'm not sure where it what space i'm in i mean um i'm really a canadian i i i, I all, like i said all of the books all of the um the world that i know is, is is of that world and um and and then there's this whole other set from the distant past that is somehow there and i'm in the middle of it or, or between both places etc I don't know so much about uh, the poems in this book uh, <laughs> uh, uh, doing that, but maybe uh, they are. <laughs> yeah, maybe they are. I hadn't, um, you know, I hadn't explicitly thought about it that way. I suppose if you take, um, you know, some of the poems quote from, um, I guess, uh, quote from rather conservative, uh, anthologized um, white authors mm -hmm. from books like The Golden Treasury of English Literature <laughs> and the, the, you know, the, the greatest English poets of whatever. So, I, you know, I'm quoting them for my own purposes. I'm taking their work and, and applying it to my own world. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I guess I'm trying to find the place that's in between. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think happy 
probably is somewhere in between sad and and um, excited. Yeah. It's um, it's it's neither one. It's not sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm happy you're here, but I'm not sure what comes of that or what <laughs> um, where we're going with that or what it really means. But yeah, I suppose there's something to it. Oh, that's that's yeah. nice. Um, will you read a few poems from the book? Sure. Um, Anything in particular? Well. I, I really like um, the poems on page 16 and 17, uh, Being in This World, an Immigrant Astronaut. Sure. Being in this world. Synonyms for flesh are fine-edged, like bee-wing. How like the leaf's curl it is, being in this world of diminishing returns. Mem memory and mimicry. Secret tasks formed from a lost this and that. If I change the image, will the tyrant return? It isn't possible, this destroying, unless it is your plan to make of me what can be made of me. I thought you'd already know the things I have lost. It's your turn to whip me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's a, I hope there's some... I'm glad you laughed, really. Um, because it's, um, it, it's supposed to... Yes, I'm trying... Um, there's supposed to be some humor to that. You can't take these things very seriously. No, so, I really like that last line. That's why I wanted you to yeah, read it. Well, thank you. Um, and Immigrant Astronaut? Yeah, yeah, please. Sure. Immigrant Astronaut. I can't get over being on Earth. It helps that I'm with you, but who knows what you see in me or place in me each time I'm near your fragrance. I'm getting up from this chair. I haven't stood up from it before, but I'm standing now, and by that I mean no harm. It's just that you've put in the hard work. Go ahead and say the words that you'll never hear me say, which explains my face. My mouth is a hummingbird's lodge. He took up residence in me when I came to the new world. That's when all my color flew inward, and I grew neutral and flagless, iridescent only on the inside. <laughs> I, I have a note that says maybe the regret of assimilation here. I don't know, but, you yeah, know. <laughs> I, I think absolutely. You know, for me, it's a rather, um, I don't know, in many ways, it's a rather obvious poem. But it's that last part that is very important to me. Mm. Um, you know, anyone that's been a, uh, that's an immigrant or knows what that feels like, where um, you think that you're uh, uh, dissolving all the subjective and um, ethnic and uh, uh, obviously identifiable parts of yourself in order to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so you feel very neutral and flagless so that you don't necessarily, um, you can't access the past, which might, which might give you a flag to mm -hmm. hold and to um, give you some um, subjective uh, identity or whatever. So you, you feel that you have to d get rid of all of that in order to assimilate or to fit in. But of course, you realize after a while that um, you accrue a whole new set of flags and a mm. whole new set of um, uh, uh, subjective experience. It's just not yours. Mm. It's not just that assimilation makes you empty. Mm. It does. It empties everything that's previous or, right. or a lot that's previous. But it actually gets filled up with the experiences of the dominant culture. Yeah. So it's very awkward. Um, you, um, you know, you feel neutral and flagless, but I think it's it's also true that um, there's a flag there. There's there are experiences; they're just not yours. Well, and I think that's um, you know that's the thing that's that interests me about the conversation about assimilation. Um, that interested me when I learned about what it meant to be Chicano, which was not Mexican and not American, but this new existence that was defining itself as it grew. And I think that, that that's 
what is interesting is that assimilation yes you must lose to gain but you're still gaining right. and what what is what then is the product of the of the what is the finished product of the gaining yeah. and the losing and how do we move forward from there yeah for me this the gaining has been like a steamroller mm. it just flattens everything from the past out mm. it, it flattens all the special parts out mm. into this um ubiquity that's mm. just so dominating um you know uh, i think though there's something that uh, i try to approach in the book is that it's also just an aspect of being modern or or uh, mm. of i guess modernity is the yeah. word in graduate school right <laughs> so even in modernity there's a flattening a steamrolling um it's uh it's whether it's consumer culture or um, or bland politics, uh, where there's really just one party or, right. or with shades of var- you know, variations on the same on a single theme, right? There's a there's a certain uh, generic flatness to it to modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, spikes are not appreciated, you know, <laughs> in the graph or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not it's not just about race or or, or a heritage being flattened out I think um, it's something about uh, the modern experience that flattens us out um, and, and and perhaps moving us towards some kind of universal oneness I mean that's what some people would argue like like the the inability to have um, dips and and heights of experience leaves us all having the same sort of flat lined experience yeah i wouldn't be optimistic about it I, you know uh, uh, i would appre- i would uh, i would appreciate a kind of uh, one love one oneness uh, <laughs> right. but i think mostly it will be a negative oneness yeah. or it is a negative oneness it's it, um uh, once the differences are eroded and and the spikes are not appreciated modernity gives us a rather um negative uh, quality an um uh, it, it's not empty because it's filled with the, the dominant culture or what have you, um, but it feels empty. Yeah. So it's not promising, I wouldn't say. Well, I mean, that was something that was frustrating to me when I moved to China. I thought, gosh, I'm moving to China mainland and doing these things, and it was exciting. But after a while going experiencing the tourism experience when I wasn't working, I realized that Everywhere I went was the same tourist experience, no matter what part of China I was in, which is why my husband and I decided not to go to the Great Wall as well as not to go to see the Terracotta Warriors. We, we didn't want to be disappointed in the tourist experience of being flattened. Then my husband went to Guatemala to do some work on an engineering project with his school, and he said, I can't believe how many of the same trinkets I saw in Guatemala that we had seen in the countryside of China and that we had also seen when we traveled to Thailand. And so there was this ubiquitousness of culture inside of the tourist spaces and it was so disappointing. And then suddenly you say, well, do I really want to travel the world? Isn't that awful to think that way? Well, uh, if I may, yeah, this sounds very... um, uh well, I, I have a poem in the book actually yeah. that refers to that called "Gift please. Shop." Please, yeah, um, no, please. <laughs> so this is a special experience for my wife and I. We went to the Dominican Republic, and anyone that's been there and knows anything about it knows that the history prior to the colonial period is is now erased. It's, mm. it's completely absent. I, I, I may have my facts wrong, but. I believe that when we went to the um, Museum of Christopher Columbus, uh, mm-hmm. the house, the guide said that there are no indigenous people on DR remaining, and that no trace of their art or their artifacts or their culture remains. Mm. So he ad- he admitted that when we go into tourist shops uh, to, to buy the um, trinkets of the Dominican Republic, which one would not... So hope to assume had something to do with the indigenous <laughs> culture. It's just not true. So when you buy a hat in DR, it has a particular symbol of a figure, a, ma- a, a man, a figure, uh-huh. like, a, like a stick figure. But apparently, if I'm not mistaken, I apologize if I am, 
I believe that that's an invention of the of the over the recent past. That that no um, no um, uh, useful symbol or or, or um, work of art or anything remains from the erased culture. And um, you know that uh, what can you really say about something like that? And uh, I tried to in a short poem, okay. which I call Gift Shop. So. Please, go ahead. So anyways, um, my wife and I are walking on the beach in the DR in La Romana. So Gift Shop. In La Romana, tourist kids frothed around the beach, amputating starfish. We smiled at them to see if they recognized two special people, honeymooners, avengers against the negative spin Earth had taken. But when the kids looked at us, brown and woodenly posed, in our bathing suits, we felt indigenous, of inexplicit kind, like factory maids for an eliminated people. You know, the... I mean, the, it, um, I'm probably generalizing of the actual experience, but my, my feeling was that the kids on the beach were um, Americans and Germans and uh, uh, Europeans. I, I was thinking of them as white kids on the beach, frothing around. And uh, when they saw us, you know, it's not that they necessarily um, thought of us perhaps as uh, indigenous or, or officially uh, Dominican. Right. But that we felt that they might think of us as um, a, a native or mm -hmm. officially uh, Dominican. Right. Whatever that is or whatever that really means. And it just made me think of what the guide had said at the, at the um, museum, that um, they're just factory-made, they're ready-mades. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's just an aspect of consumption and tourism, and uh, it, it's, it's not related to any kind of legitimate heritage, you know? And it always comes back to the same subject again. Here I go feeling bad about it. Mm -hmm. But you can't help but feel that way as an immigrant at times about your own culture or um, where you, you know, where where you come from. If I go back to Tanzania, it would be as a tourist. Mm. I would be going on a safari. <laughs> I wouldn't be experiencing my country in any way as um, a true member of that country. I would be going there and experiencing it through car windows and through um, in tourist shops, and I would come back with it with souvenirs. I wouldn't come back with it with necessarily with um, chunks of my own heritage. It would be with um, um, just souvenirs. <laughs> no, I I understand. Um, you know, I uh, I feel the same way about Mexico. I, I've actually never been. Yeah. And uh, there's a part of me that feels very sad about that. My grandfather's from a very particular place, so I've thought about finding a way to get back to that space. Right. But getting back to that space, how? I mean, I don't even speak. My Spanish is not even nearly, I mean, passable. And what so it's it frustrating. Well, what really would you go there for? What would you, what possibly could you get out of it? I mean, I feel like I, I haven't been to, back to Tanzania since 1976. Wow. That's 40 years. What really would I get out of standing in the Ngorongoro crater? Uh, or in, even in my hometown of Masoma? What would it mean to me? I'd have no one to talk to. No one would remember me. Why I returned would be a mystery to everyone that was there. Mm. They didn't even know I had left. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and, and then I think, would I, would I feel the same kind of um, enlightenment or, or, or happiness or um, excitement that I felt, felt the first time I visited Robinson Jeffers' tour house in Carmel? And then you say, really? Like, you feel like you said, you feel bad about this inability to find yourself, your, find what you consider to be yourself or what you consider to be your culture based only specifically on the fact that we're brown right. in a white world. Right. 
Yeah, I just can't make heads or tails out of that. There's nowhere for me to go except write, uh, to read and write, to talk about it, mm. um, to little by little make some kind of meaning out of it. But the meaning's not there for me to just pick up and bring home, you know? Yeah, it's, we have uh, to parse it. Yeah. And uh, as we said earlier, you, uh, if, you, if you do parse it and you make, if you create something out of it, then you feel a lot of times that it's being used as in a token way or yeah. as an aspect of the other or, or, or that you're participating as one of a, just one of a particular niche. You're filling a niche, right. you know. Um, but, you know. Well, maybe we are, but we have to do it. I mean, I don't know. I suppose it can be very disappointing. Uh, I spoke about the example of having to join the, the writer's community as a fraternity. But I also recently received a reply from a publisher in Toronto who said that, um, actually, it's on their website as well. It says that they, they accept, or they're more likely to accept submissions from authors who have a strong record of publication in um, prominent literary journals in Canada. Mm. So they're basically asking me for something that's not possible. Mm. Because there's no chance, there's just not the opportunity for me to be featured in prominent publications in Canada with the same... Uh, it's just not as available as it is to um, white authors in Canada. It's just not likely. They're asking me to perform something that um, would be very hard. It would take a very long time to do. Frankly, I think the request is racist. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know how we got onto that. Well, no, I mean, I think I think that that's an important thing to say, to, to think about as well. I mean, these, the, the, the same thing happens in America, you know, um, you think about the greatest American essays or the greatest American poetry anthology or the Norton anthologies or any of these great anthologized pieces. And when I, over time, over the years of being a student of literature, I've read them and looked at them and I've always thumbed through and say, okay, well, who's brown or who's got something or whose poetry represents something that is more, is closer to what I want to read. And it's always one or two or three at the most. And then you say, well, then how can you ever stand to get some kind of large prize, you know, the MacArthur Genius Award or the or any of these other things? How can you ever compete with those worlds when those worlds don't let you compete with them to yeah. begin with? Yeah, because the requirements are, on are, are onerous for people of color. Right. We, we, we don't get the chance in, in all of the stages to get to receiving the grant or the prize or the publication at the uh, publishing house because... The stages to get there are skewed. Right. And I mean, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that this particular publisher was actively racist right. in that statement. They just don't know what they're saying. They just don't realize how, how um, almost impossible it is to expect uh, me to accomplish that feat. And... and um, and, and, and many other people. I mean, um, in Tenehisi Coates' book, uh, In Between the World and Me, which is one of the books that I highly recommend anyone read. But, I mean, he says that, you know, that none of these structures, one of the things he says, and I'm paraphrasing, is that none of the structures are overtly racist because overt racism in the white culture is no longer culturally acceptable. But that the systems themselves and how the systems function are so overtly racist to those of us who are trying to break through that there is no term, there's really no terminology for us to define them and to say, well, that's racist because it's systematically racist. And how can you not see this? Yeah, the publishing house is off the hook. You see what I mean? <laughs> they're off the hook. It's okay. What they're doing is, is not overtly racist. It's systemic. And uh, if I were to write a letter to them, it would sound like I was a jerk. Right. I would sound pissed off. Uh, right. Uh, and, and, um... They would have a lot of, they might have some liberal guilt, but I think that they would say, well, you know, um, we're not, on. yeah, we're not actively racist, <laughs> but 
So what do you do? And I mean, this is the problem that we're dealing with. And I mean, I don't know if it's changing. I don't know if anything, but we just have to keep working at what we're working at to keep it going. So why don't we, um, do you want to read from your new manuscript? Do you want to read a couple more poems from? um, I think that there's one or two in the new one that uh, work with the topic that we're, Okay, let's go with it. We seem to always be going to. (laughs) We can't help it. I know. Well, it's very hard. No, again, I'm apologizing no, well, for some me, reason. Me too. And, you know, I have, I, I do, um, I had an interview with another woman recently, and she said, well, she said, uh, since you focus on writers of color, are those the only people you want to talk to? And I said to her, no, but I have a focus right. because I feel like I have a task and that task is to give people, writers of color specifically, an, an opportunity to have space yeah. in a place where we are not often given space. Well, maybe we could um, uh, uh, take us off the hook by also at some point talking about other things, you know, uh, <laughs> like uh, form or I don't know, what, what do we talk about in, in these types of things when you're talking about poetry, but style... Uh, Maybe there are other things, but I suspect no matter what we try to talk about, it will come back to the same subject, the same theme. Um, and well, yeah, and even when, when I, I'm sorry, we'll get to your poem, um, but even when I was working with my book and, and I was uh, working inside of the function of form, which right. is something I was working with, I was still working with form as a, um, as a, as a rejection of the forms that I had been... Sure had been nailed into me, which is traditional form. And so I said, well, I want to reject this traditional form as a representation of the self rejecting that culture. So it's still, I mean, uh, if I may also riff off of that. (laughs) Um, So say we talk about the usefulness of workshops, you know, with reference to my poems. So, um, you know, I did an MFA just like you did. did, You know, everyone seemed, it seems requisite to do an MFA. And so you do a lot of workshops and, and, MFAs and I found it very useful for the purposes of learning craft and listening to other writers and seeing the kinds of things that they liked or, or and all of that but I no longer participate in workshops it's probably been 15 years and I don't think I could ever do it again um, so I start I would start this conversation by wanting to write about uh, start wanting to talk about issues of craft and revision and the purposes of workshops and style and what you learn. But frankly, in the end, it's because those workshops were mainly filled with white writers. And the um, recommendations, the ideas, the, the, the craft uh, um, advice are inside a um, a system or framework or something some word mm-hmm. that has to do with the um, dominant culture right and is not relevant to me so I would want to start talking about matters of style and craft and workshops but I, I'm going to end up talking about the fact that they're not relevant to me as a colored person right do you see what I mean? It always comes back to that somehow. No, it does. I mean, and this is, you know, in the same vein, but maybe not. But my husband and I have been talking about names for the baby that I'm right. about. I'm not about to have, but going to have sometimes. That was a bit of a wish. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and, you know, my, his last name is Sweeney. He's a very white Western Pennsylvania. And I said, well, I want to give it a really traditional Mexican first name something that's been in the family for a long time and so we've come up with these things and I was talking in my prenatal swimming class over in Santa Cruz and you know they're it's all white women and me and they're talking about this stuff and I mentioned I said well I'm worried about giving my child a traditional Mexican first name because if the child is also very brown then I might be setting it up for failure in the world of of applications or in all kinds of different forms 
I mean, and, and here they are talking about naming their kids with no implication of race, no concept. They're, they're thinking about names as aesthetic, whatever aesthetics they want to please. Right. And I'm always thinking about, wait a second, do I just want to give it my husband's Chris Sweeney so that it can right. make it through? If it is no. a boy or a girl, you know, something else. So the question is, how long is it going to take until the members of that group how many years are going to have to pass before it's recognized that they also are choosing ethnic names? Paul is an mm -hmm. ethnic name. Mm -hmm. When will that time come when it's not just us <laughs> Who are that you? are making decisions that implicate us in ethnicity and race and color and what, will, what the, your, the life of your child will be? Um, how long, when will it happen that they also recognize that they're making ethnic choices, that they're making choices about their heritage? I don't know. I don't know either, but why don't you read some poems? All right. <laughs> so this is from a new manuscript I'm working on. It's called Indigenous Inexplicitous. When I say my name, people act like I've handed them fire or a baby they've got to say something about now that it's in their arms. <laughs> they didn't know my planet was there the whole time, behind the curtain like stabbed Polonius. I fell off a cliff when I decided to be born among strangers. I lie around in the sun, my brown skin further browning. It took centuries to stop thinking about things I never got to lose. They were already gone before I'd noticed they weren't there to be lost. I'm trying so hard to discover or rediscover an undiscovered country. Who can blame me for fascinating the birds as I walk through the forest? Thank you. Mm. Um, yeah, well, isn't that funny that your first line was about a baby's name anyway? Right, right. well, I'm saying. <laughs> You know, maybe we planned it. I don't know. <laughs> so, shall I read another? Yes, yeah, please. so it's also from the same manuscript. Um, it's called African Masks. And um, lucky, if I may say, luck, I'm lucky enough that it's just now appearing in Tipton Poetry Journal. Right. So, African Masks. As a kid, I'd hate to lose my way to the drawers of ornithology or African masks. I didn't fancy the mesa blankets and said no to all the walks of tears, of fears, of hunger. Best was to find myself in the ice cream shop or gift shop, the white people's diorama in which they do not disappear from the earth. I still don't like pinned butterflies and pieces of petrified forest you take home in your pockets. I don't need to see the sunken treasure brought to dry land. It's like if there's a gem on the Queen of England's crown that I know belongs to my bride. You won't see me just reach out and take it. Wow. Well, thank you so much for the conversation and for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> great to meet you. All right, you're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org, where we're streaming live all over the world. Tonight's guest was a wonderful poet, Ayaz Pirani. Um, and uh, thank you for listening to the show. Um, I'm really grateful for that conversation. I learned a lot. And I hope you do too. And, you know, that's always the goal of this poetry show is to be able to highlight the voices of people and be able to understand the complexities of our shared American culture because it is a lot more complex than we often give it credit for. Um, so I'm going to play you out with some Gladys Knight and I'll be back um, next week with another poet. Uh, I haven't booked them yet, but um, I'll have someone for you to listen to next week. I promise. All right. Have a good night and uh, tune in next week. Love has found another and gone.